Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many people say that music is a universal language. If that's the case, I would like to use music as a platform to talk about health. My name is Dr. Moshe Lewis, and I'm a full-time practicing physician who loves music and the way it affects our brains, our bodies, and our well-being. We'll be discussing topics that affect all of us, from mental health to body image, cancer screening to stroke. Our health is truly our greatest asset. Hopefully, these discussions will improve the health of our community. Welcome to Music and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Moshe Lewis. I'm excited and delighted to not only be in this funky setting, but to be joined by Dr. Glenn Toby. He has done some amazing things and has taken his Book Bank Foundation to the next level of philanthropy. So I want to get into your background because it's amazing. We are both in Brooklyn, and I learned at the age of eight, and you won't know this about me, but you became homeless. I was abandoned as a child, like literally left in an apartment building almost like this, and I grew up with a totally different family. Tell me just sort of what was that like in terms of just trying to manage and cope? So my mother had worked hard. She worked with the New York State um, pension retirement system. Uh, the gentleman that she was working for had some financial improprieties, embezzlement. Or, so this is a young woman that comes from Georgia. My family's from Georgia. My mother comes up from Georgia. They wanted her to testify, get involved in it. My grandmother was with us as well. And my mother fought the system. She didn't want to be a pawn or be involved in the improprieties. So she refused to buckle down, didn't want to sell her body, didn't want to um, take any shortcuts. And she just stood and firm to try to get her paycheck. They tried to they put a moratorium on pay. Um, it spiraled down. One day we came home. There was no money and all our toys and furniture in the street. I was with my brother as well as a child. I was about eight years old. And when you see this, I made a quick decision, I kind of shut my childhood off because part of that to make sure that my mother and my grandmother would know I was hungry at night right. um, because I became impatient. We would constantly, we were staying, before they were called welfare hotels, the St. George Hotel in Brooklyn downtown was one of the first, was kind of the model for welfare hotels. We would bounce around with relatives. I think we went to a group home once. We escaped the, the group home uh, because my grandmother was on top of where we were. We were separated from my mother. So for me, um, I just was obedient. I was rambunctious and it forced me to live inside my mind. Mm -hmm. Most children live in their heart or they live in their space. Wherever you set that child, that child is there and you sometimes have to disrupt it to engage for education, to put in love, to pour in spirituality. Mine was completely closed with what I got from birth to eight years old. So I'm reading books, voracious reader, um, I, most of our days we would, um, after school, we would ride on the subways and then go to either museum because we had no babysitter or we would go in a library. So my brother and I would compete and read and read and read. And it only became, um, the downward spiral for even as a child experiencing homelessness was, uh, when you're getting impatient. So I had no patience as a child. 
And I go, I foray, I go through this whole process of instability, never having my own bed, never my own clothes, bouncing around. We even end up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a while, come home, join my aunt um, in the seventh grade. And I have to adapt socially, emotionally, catching up at the speed of sound. And found was found brother with you my brother time? was with me. Okay. My brother Randall was with me. So we had each other sharing and growing. My mother always protected us, so there was no sexual abuse, there was no mental or emotional abuse. We watched my mother's spiral um, into mental health as low as you could go. My mother today is completely restored, wow. completely sane, com completely functional. We talk about all that we've gone through. But I'd say when I got to the seventh grade, um, we were a part of this amazing spiritual, cultural phenomenon called hip hop, right. which birthed me becoming an MC called Sweetie G. Right. That trail in music um, and culture from the dynamic of breakdancing, DJing, sure. uh, graffiti, storytelling helped to accumulate, which would be my pathway to communication. Right. And you were right there in the heart of it from the very, very beginning. Did you have a sense at that time, not where it would go, but how it maybe in its own way was helping to sort of rescue or at least allow your creativity to come out? No, you don't really know. I mean, we were doing something called pause tapes at that time. And then Mike and Dave Productions um, kind of take, discovered the next move of me going with Dougie Fresh, Crash Crew, um, Grandmaster Kaz, all these guys. And I was number one in Queens for quite a while. And I even ranked as a battle rapper in New York in the five boroughs, off and on, up and down, um, with the greatest in Queens. Um, after me came Run DMC, LL Cool J. They used to come to my shows um, just before hip hop really broke. And Curtis got the big deal. Um, and you when talk it, about Curtis Blow, Curtis you Blow. say, yeah, I know you Curtis, throw out these first names, yeah, yeah. but before, sure. Before Curtis Blow got signed, and then I made a decision, I was supposed to go to Sugar Hill, right. and somebody asked for 100% of my publishing. I remember going home to my grandmother saying, I can't do this, it would be like selling my soul. Right. And and back up, because I know you've been an agent and we're going to get to that, but when you say 100%, like, what does that mean? Like, everything. Everything. They, so there's the writer's share and there's the publisher's share. Okay. And that gives the power to administrate and control the fiduciary. Right. So cognitively, intuitively, and spiritually, I looked at everybody else that had a record deal. Right. And I grew up with, you know, people, South Jamaica, Queens, Queens Village, Supreme Team, Cauley, Cat, all these notorious drug dealers. Mm -hmm. the, it was the burgeoning crack era. I could have easily went that route. But I was in the middle of that populace, right? I was in the middle. These were my friends and favorites. And the economy, you know, I never sold, dealt drugs, but I benefited from that era. Right, right. The United States of America benefited from it. Reaganism benefited from it, benefited from it and so did many families, right? Yeah. Um, it was no different than what um, the Kennedys did during the Prohibition era, right? And we've that many times we've discovered that in urban communities a million times but it was the curation of art expression fashion and passion that kept me from crashing oh i love it that's great wow breaking that down because i mean what you're going through not only on an emotional level but you're still very very young is something that most people would certainly not want their kids everybody wants their kids at least they are willing to make that sacrifice what other things did you feel you grabbed a hold to, to really, whether it was your aunts or other things, to really sort of 
still be able to, to not lose it because it would be easy to be very angry and or very violent or act out in school all the time. So one thing I used to do when I was in, I went to Benjamin Cardoza High School and uh, Queens Village Junior High. So I would compete against myself in the classroom. Okay. Wasn't on the, I played ball in the parks with my friends, sure. but I wasn't on the athletic team. Music, uh, I'd say when I became a senior in high school, I kind of took off. But in between then, I used education. I was competing against myself. So if I had homework on a Monday night that was due Wednesday, I would wait hours before Wednesday to compete against myself, the other students, and the teacher. And I would, and this is where I got my work ethic. So I would use the newspapers. I would use the news broadcast. I would go inside the books and I would ask family questions. So now I'm coming up with this overachiever mentality because I always saw it as I saw life like a dog was chasing me. I had to keep running from that dog. And I was on that run. And when I had the dog beat, I would sit down for a second and think about it. Right. So I always thought I would compete against myself because all I had was myself. I was never, I never saw myself in the middle of general society. Um, But I wasn't an outcast either, you know? Right, right. You were connected to some really important people. And then you were talking about sort of that decision to say, I'm not going to basically sell my soul um, and give up everything I work for. Just walk us through that in terms of sort of making that decision and then sort of what happened afterwards. So for me, in the art form, I realized I would have to trade my financial and economic possibilities for the future. Mm-hmm. And because I did pretty well as a kid coming up uh, in middle school through high school, and I saw that um, pathway to success or possibility, I did not want to trade my potential for money. Mm-hmm. I was born rich. I wasn't born poor. I was born poor, P-O-U-R, pouring myself into these things. I had the ability to be a vessel to pour into others, mm-hmm. saw the richness, uh, in myself, and I didn't want to trade um, these indelible qualities. My brother and I, we were sometimes faster than most. We weren't uh, distracted by girls. We weren't distracted by sports. We weren't distracted by uh, materialism because we didn't have it. Right. So we were always living in other spaces. Mm-hmm. Through books and education, I could travel back to Roman times. I could sit on the raft with um, Tom Sawyer. There was no limit to where um, I could travel through education. So we always kind of had an edge. Everybody was looking at culture and trend, Mm -hmm. and we were looking at um, moving forward. Sure, and being trendsetters. Many people, and some people might call it an excuse, would say, uh, teachers don't like me. The books are terrible. It's too dangerous. I can't really do the work and put the study in. What made you think different? What crystallized education is still being the key to your success? I saw how easy rapping came to me. I saw how easy making money dealing drugs would come, how easy it would be to be successful for a moment and have temporary success. And I said to myself, as long as I live, I'd never be hungry again. Only thing I ever wanted in my life was a bed and my own clothes. I think the minute I started getting into fashion and had this nice bed, I was like, is this this easy? Right. We need more was challenges. Was challenge? We need okay. more challenges. Interesting. And uh, I kind of stopped and went into business during that period of time mm-hmm. until I discovered house music was one of the pioneers in house music right. and continued to produce mixed records, um, joined Charles Fisher, managing LL Cool J for four years. 
Yeah, so that was great. And so let's talk about that after high school is done, sort of what's that next step? Because I mean, it almost seems like if you're from New York, you know the hustle, you're born to hustle, but actually putting it together, it's such a big city, it's so competitive. How did you actually sort of make the success come to fruition? So for me, you know, the hustlers were big, right? Drug dealer, hustlers, players. So my thesis was to wait till the hustlers are not hustling. Okay. Sort of like when the lions go to the water, they're tired because they just ate the prey. Right. I pull right up. Mm. I got something for that water and that good meal you have, right? <laughs> so when I was going after the players, right. when the whistle blows and they stop playing, that's the agent piece that's in me. Mm. So then I'm pitching, okay. never playing them because sure, right. I didn't want to play against some of them. And some of them, I had them beat. The ones I had beat, there was no measure. Yeah. So I would wait till the ball stops dribbling, the drug stops swinging, the girls <laughs> stop playing, right. and catch everybody when they're sitting still and give them resolute, mm -hmm. solid ideas right. with things that they already own. So I never had to sell them anything but themselves, mm -hmm. whether it's the power of their potential, right. something that they're trading, or the money that they made. Right. Let's talk about a couple of those transactions you did, whether it was with um, you know, some famous artists or, or the athletes what was sort of, you've given some of your key to success, but, but what you were really trying, when you say sell themselves so that they could appreciate the inner, as opposed to it only being, I'm gonna make sure I look out for me. So for instance, maybe I had a friend that was out of drug dealing or had finished or was coming home from jail mm -hmm. and he'd have a couple of thousand dollars. I'd say, hey, listen, put that money into a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. I'll give you three mutual funds. And I started out with the Templeton uh, funds when I was about 16. I went to, to um, Merrill Lynch with um, dollars, crazy dollars, coins. I might have had 500 bucks. And I asked for a broker named Willie Fry. He was an athlete, um, played at Notre Dame, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Big, strong brother, really wise. Um, and you and went into the bank at I went, that age. I went to Merrill Lynch with these coins, put on a suit, walked in and said, I want to invest this $500. And how I knew $500, the minimum to invest in the Wall Street Journal, all those ads I would see was Templeton was 500 bucks. Uh -huh. So I didn't know to get a money order. I took some coins and singles and 50s and hundreds and came in. And I remember he left me there for about 20 minutes. And I knew him 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years later. And he told me he was crying in the back. Because wow. he was poor and, I, and, and he was facing poverty. I think he was from Alabama, Oakland. He was from, I think he was in the, from the Midwest. And um, that put a light on my head. I put the $500 in. I had to go get a money order. Did he keep the money? No, he had me, he had to leave. He had me go get money orders and come and deposit it at Merrill Lynch. And he was gone. Then he bought the shares. And I remember the day he bought the shares, a light went off in me. And he, I said, can I see it? He said, go to the Wall Street Journal and see those numbers. From that day on, I started telling other people about these investments. Wow. Then I started experimenting and looking around and doing all the research I could get, which I extrapolated from being forced to learn. Right. Um, you know, sitting in these spaces, um, always restless, but plugged in. And I started studying trends in Keynesian and Smith economics um, theorem. You know what I mean? I didn't know that's what it was, but I saw Smith and I went, that, and I went to Dun and & Brad and I looked at all these inverse. I, today, I, I would connotate this with these ex, extremely uh, um, macro and microeconomic terms, right. but it was that in its space. So I would model my performance in the market 
take no money and tell the hustlers that's what you should buy. When their money would move slowly, they might come back and give me some money. Right. No drugs, right, right. just money. And then sometimes they would double down and they would give me the money orders. And then I, so it was, it was never money laundering. It was the mother and the aunt. I became popular doing that. Right. Um, from that, I realized she needed to have a license, left it alone. Okay. I built a sizable portfolio as a young, young guy. I mean, before 21, I was driving, um, you know, nice foreign cars and um, moving around, traveling through the music space. And I had the um, entrepreneurial spirit with the gift of speech, you know, to connotate as an MC, with the cunningness to be strategic um, from the hustlers and the players, and the amazing culture from 60s, 70s, and 80s, all all in my deck of cards. Amazing. And then with time, you transitioned into being a sports agent. Well, that came along after music. Um, I had written some songs. I was involved with uh, um, a group called Cultural Vibe, which I was one of the founding members. We did house music um, for them. We had a song called Mafumbe, Mind Games, Power, all these different records, remixed on a global level, did some touring, was signed to Capitol Records, and that came out. And I was managing, I discovered David Banner. Sure. Uh, managed and discovered him, Positive K. Um, and I met a brother named Alonzo Shavers who had a sports company. Mm-hmm. And the concept was I was going to take the hustle, the speed, and the sexiness of the entertainment industry right. and put it with the sports industry. Right. National Football League is just like the United States government or the military. Most of those clients have four-year degrees or have been in a university or college mm-hmm. for two years, whether somebody's doing their homework or they're student athletes. So now I'm talking to someone that's cognitive. I'm talking to someone that understands systems that can pull plays out. And uh, we went from uh, signing our first couple of clients. Uh, My first client was Damian Robinson, number 22, New York Jets. I went to Josh Evans. Um, And then I did the biggest deal I did in the NFL was uh, Asante Samuels. We did $60 million for him when he went to Philadelphia. And we've represented over $300 million in contract, performance contracts in the National Football League. Right. And the same thing, you were teaching them some of these basic principles of how to invest and how to make their money work for them and essentially how to basically not get taken advantage of because I know I've heard you say the time in the NFL, and I've seen it to be about three years, it used to be about eight, is very short. Yeah. I mean, they're basically, I've said it a million times, they're basically CEOs with helmets on. And and I was able to connect with them through a lot of players are sponsored by the drive, the culture, or the cash of a hustler, a drug dealer, or somebody that they should not be involved with. We were able to communicate with these people immediately, whether it was drug dealers that put up money for these athletes to get them sneakers or helping family members out. Uh, we were able to not be involved in payola or paying off athletes. We didn't play with the alumni as an African-American um, agency, there was one time my f- picture and my name were synonymous with, the, if you Googled sports agent, my picture came up. Right. So in an industry that was so dominated um, by tradition, we really made some inroads and some changes. Absolutely. And then with your wealth, still looking for more challenges, it sounds like we're going down this path of constantly giving back and trying to go to that next level. You really discovered philanthropy and taking it to the next level. What did that look like and how did you form your foundation. Well, so one day I was, 
uh, I was in Atlanta. I, I was in a 12,500 square foot house. I had cars, traveling first class. I'm in newspapers, magazines, on TV, saw ESPN. I was living on television off of my ability to trade and represent great talent. And then I said, I don't know. It's a way I said, man, how did I get all this money? Is it from stocks? Was it from real estate? And then I said, no, where is the core? Because I never saw my father. I was a child when I saw my father. You know, I saw my father died early in my life, but I didn't have a relationship with him. So my uncle was a mentor, was a leader. I had to create um, a mentor and a father uh, by watching gangster movies and black exploitation movies with the superheroes and kind of putting that together with what I thought a man would be. And I ended up saying a man would be the woman. Well, my mother, a woman like my mother did not have that man. So I was gonna be that man she dreamed of, not for a woman, but for the world. Okay, right. That's a lot to take on for the world. But I saw that as eight. When I, you know, all those times when something was missing, I was too small and too young and didn't have enough reach right. to change my whole world. So I said, let me change the whole world. Right. You know, and I did it day by day, step by day, by step, pain by pain, failure by failure. Right. I always say you live Shoot. and learn, but you can also get burned. And, and, and I appreciate, I appreciate the emotion. I mean, to take that passion and want to give it back. I mean, I've seen the videos and I know they're real. You are there in the homeless shelter, yeah. you know, giving things to people and saying, I was where you are. And I didn't want to just bring a government pack of cheese. I didn't want to just bring you some food stamps. Yeah. I wanted to bring you kicks that I might buy wow. that my guys wear. <laughs> See? What a recall. Sure. Yes, and give you guys high quality because you deserve it. It's wow. just your circumstances are. That's just, that's very, very powerful. So many people say, and I'm not saying that the charity out there isn't real, but, but you had experienced it. So I think a lot of people that were accepting those things from you knew that you could really relate to them. Not just because you're a brother, but yeah, because yeah, you yeah. had literally been not in their shoes. I mean, yeah. practically without shoes. Yeah, and those are tears with joy. Like, I, haven't, I don't think about it that much. I just got emotional thinking about it, but I think we've been in existence almost over 25 years, uh, Book Bank Foundation. We represent the lost, the lonely, and the forgotten. Um, and the Bible, if you're into the Bible, it says the poor will always be amongst us. So why not be one of the poor that are a P-O-U-R and poor in? You know, and uh, richness is indelible. It's at birth. Um, it's like potential. It's like a fuse. It's like dynamite before it's lit. Wealth is a systematic process. You could be wealthy. So people that get a lot of money that are on their pathway to wealth are not rich in spirit or generally not rich in temperament or discipline or understanding. But many people who have all those indelible qualities can outperform a wealthy person in the short range of their life. The systematic change that changes your ancestors call, that changes your legacy is when the two meet. Yeah, and I know that you have an honorary doctorate. I mean, you don't just drop this knowledge just out of the sky. I mean, it, it has been well, well earned and, and definitely well appreciated. Tell us a little bit more about what the foundation does and what you all are doing now. Yeah, so now um, it's with my brother. Um, uh, yeah, my, 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 yeah, my brother has a philanthropy. He has something called uh, mentoring. 
he has a mentoring program mm -hmm. and it's in New York and it's, it's thriving and it does really well. So he's in the same space, but he's doing something different and he mentors young boys and young men. So we ended up both being in that same space, but what Bookbank does, we're an education based foundation. We do a lot of, uh, we believe our people and all people are more kinetic now than other, right? Mm -hmm. The displacement of and the digital world. Right, but let's hold on a second. All people are more kinetic than ever. Break that down for us, because you throw these phrases out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that so almost flow like your rhymes. Okay. <laughs> Tell us what we mean by that, because I can get my interpretation and I get a physics yeah, interpretation, yeah, but yeah, I want yours. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go from the physics to and the human to the um, the magnanimity of kinetics. So some people are so displaced from human exchange. They they are involved in theorem. They're living in the digital world. They're online. There's not a lot of connectivity. There's not a lot of social space. They can earn their money, transfer it into Bitcoin. Never deal with anybody. Right. Not kinetic. Um, a lot of the hustlers, there's not a lot of hand hustling. I mean, people are finding ways to hustle in different ways, whether they're trading or, right? And the, the uh, pandemic has kind of reduced that human connection, right? So kinetic, when you talk about the motion of it, the physics, the feeling, um, we as human beings need one another. We do need to resonate. Those of us that are able to duplicate the spirit of exchange with people, even in a prison cell, if the spirit is alive, more alive than the body, that person will thrive and connotate with the entire prison. It's their leadership, their thought leadership, their spirit that can move the man more than the bully that's just beating people up. The one guy who can cognitively move the building or move the physical guy can call the arms of the prison to move that one guy more than that one guy can move that whole prison. I know that you have a book out and um, you have it with us and the title is deep and some of the stuff in there, you're dropping knowledge. So tell us what it's about. It's called the Asian Power League. It's a uh, novel. It's about a young Asian, I, never, I don't say whether he's Chinese, Korean, Japanese, I just say it's an Asian family, comes to America. They have tremendous amounts of money because they work through decades of building and building and saving and using the systems um, that's really popular in Asian culture, right? Um, generally, modesty, honor, hard work, ethics, like it is in many cultures. But the focal point of this is um, they get him tons of tutors. He goes to the finest private, private schools and he goes to prep schools. Then he goes to on to work as an intern at major um, um, hedge funds and Fortune 500 companies. Right. In the internship, he meets these uh, Machiavellian people who are cynical, a little bit biased, privileged, and they throw in these ridiculous companies that he needs to model and evaluate to see whether they should go into the portfolio. They look at these companies like trash, like these companies can never go, let's dump it on his portfolio, and they're laughing at him. One of his, besides the focus on businesses, quantum analytical equations and calculations, he builds a model so that he's able to build a stock portfolio that he has measurable percentages of equity in. Those companies grow, he becomes a billionaire. From there, as time goes on through the book, traveling, he runs for Congress. From Congress, he eventually runs for president. But one summer, he goes back and he meets his cousin. His cousin's in a group called the Asian Power League. And that Asian Power League is a gang, like many of the 
Asian gangs, we know their names, mm -hmm. and he meets this beautiful girl that's with one of the leaders of the gang. Oh, wow. They have a romantic summer. Mm -hmm. They're going to kill him. His cousin stops it. Wow. So he wakes up and he doesn't know whether he got beat up or was he drinking too much alcohol, is chilling with the girl. He goes back years later. As he's running for president, he gets a phone call and they say, congratulations, cousin. His name is Michael Hyung. We have pulled off the greatest leverage buyout merger in the history of the world. We now own America because of the amount of stocks you have and the secrets you have. He goes, I'm not gonna do that. I'm a man of principle. It's honor. Why would I do that? He says, you're a minute member of the Asian Power League. He says, no, I'm not. He says, you don't remember that we swore you in that night when I saved you, when you were gonna get killed for sleeping with the girl and you gotta see who the character is. Yeah. So now he's wow. being blackmailed, extorted. Does he surrender and leverage his, he becomes president of the United States, yeah. the presidency as the leader of, the, of America and give all these secrets to the gang and to this country to take America down? Mm -hmm. Or does he stand and fight evil, although he's sacrificed and compromised? Mm -hmm. And that's what the Asian power looks about. Uh, we, we got a movie here. <laughs> we got some options. And I know there's more coming. Yeah. That's just, uh, that's great. I mean, and boy, that I was not expecting that at all. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And then also tell us about, we'll pop back to music for a bit, the um, work that you do. I know you uh, had this big uh, disco jam with a lot of other um, DJs and things like that. So you're still doing the music. Still doing, yeah, I'm DJing once a month with Victor Simonelli, um, some of the greatest DJs. It's been amazing. Um, I've only really been physically DJing for about four months. Mm -hmm. And then from there it emerged into a global residency and hanging with the best, trying to learn and become better. And we're having a good time. Um, it's on Instagram. You can check it out. It's on Mixcloud. DJ Glenn Sweetie Gitobi is the name I'm using as a DJ and still doing philanthropy and running my businesses. No, that's amazing. What words of wisdom, I mean, and you've given us so many of what have you already that you leave for the young people. I think sometimes, as you were saying, they can be disengaged, disenchanted, disillusioned, because maybe they're in some ways growing up too far, too fast with too much information. Um, what, what kinds of pearls? Because you certainly have come such a long way. And, and to a level, it comes across to me where you're at peace with yourself, with your past, and with trying to help other people for their future. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I'm not at peace with the future yet. That's why we're working so hard. We're launching something called the Book Bank Institute. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing. Uh, it's going to be a curated space. We're doing um, a collaboration with Dan Vega, um, the CEO of Bookbank Foundation, David Branch, myself, Anthony Jackson, and a ton of other leaders all involved to bring the finest um, curation of curriculum experience with world leaders into an interface. We're gonna give away tons of scholarships. Um, it's an amazing curriculum. That's one of the most things I'm most excited about. But if I had a message, I would tell younger people that the devil is in digital. Now that doesn't mean it's a guy with two horns. That doesn't mean the game has changed since you've been born. I'm just here to give you, be a witness. And now it's sworn that if you're not careful, it's like the book page being torn. But now we can say we emanated and we're born. But I'm gonna tell you something, and this ain't no corn, it ain't no porn. And yes, it's sworn. So I'm gonna break it down like this. If you do not connect in the spirit and transfer the spirit and the ethos of man to the body of people physically, the world cannot change. Your ideology, your money, your Instagram 
is not going to move the spirit of people. Spirits move bodies. Bodies don't move spirits. Mm. Drop it. So it's the demon in the digital. It's not the devil necessarily in the digital. Let's be analytical and be analog-like in our process and processes and stay connected to things that are important. Empathy, passion, consciousness, health. Otherwise, we're just um, existing and not living. And so maybe then the last message for that parent, because so many of them would tell you that now, especially in the spirit of COVID, that feels their kid essentially lives on the computers all the time. Even when they're at the dinner table, they're on the devices. When they go out, they're, yeah, okay, sure. What type of way, what types of things they need to do to not sort of be sort of overwhelmed, like you said, a little bit more by the digital than by the spiritual? Well, I think most people don't think about it. They're like, these kids are always on their cell phone, not on their cell phone. They're pushing them off to stay on their cell phone. I would have them download what they learned every day. You could say, I don't understand what you're doing. Can you tell me? You're creating a space, connecting with your child. It's quality time. You're listening. You're giving them a voice at home. They're going to see the miracle of discovery. They're going to see the miracle of research. They're going to see the miracle of their theories and theorem being brought back to their parents to be rewarded. We don't want to compete with them. You'll say, really? Is that what you think? Well, let me show you this dusty book. Or let me tell you about my story. And you could smile at the kid if they're a little bit off, if they're completely wrong or they're completely right. You can whisper it. Let me give you something to add to that. And the kid is fully engaged. You have, we just have to listen to what Right. If you look at the greatest orators, if you look at the greatest artists, they spoke for society. They talked even whether it was the African griots, whether it was the Medici, whether it was during the time of Italy, all of the artisans, the clowns. Right. They bring in the clowns to entertain. We got to keep talking. We have to listen, listen to the next generation. If we can't stop where they're going, at least we'll know where they're going. <laughs> I love that. This this has been wonderful. I mean, I, I just I just loved it. I think there's so many messages here and so much to unpack. And I hope that we can also catch up again. Um, I was so happy when David helped us get connected and um, enjoy listening to your music, learning more about you, learning about your past, and today having you share with us. Thank you, appreciate it. So I thank you. And uh, I'm Dr. Moshe Lewis. Please check out Dr. Glenn Toby's book, Asian Power League. You can get it. And you really should read it. It sounds amazing. And the stories are incredible. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.